0: If the one thing you long for most in the world is the sweet release of death, may Lord Melton find you first. Fuck it all up. Hi, and welcome to Sex and Whiskey. I'm story expert Lonnie Diane rich of Chipperish Media, and we are here today to talk about The Battle Joined, the first episode of Season 3. The Battle Joined aired on September 10th, 2017 and was written by series showrunner creator Ronald D. Moore. This episode was directed by Brendan Marr. This is Mars' first episode of Outlander, and according to IMDB, he will return to direct episodes three, four, and five of season three, giving him almost a third of the total 13 episodes for this season. No pressure, buddy. Season three covers roughly the events of the third book in the Outlander series, Voyager, and for those of us who've read the books, we come into this season with high hopes that some things remain unchanged and that others are drastically changed. We'll see how that turns out, Willoughby. Now, as we dive into this new season of Outlander, we finally get to find out how our favorite TV show is adapting our favorite series of books. For those of you who don't read the books, please get in touch with your thoughts. I can't remember what it was like to be in this story before I knew every plot movement. I would love to hear thoughts and responses from viewers who have no idea what to expect. Your perspectives on this would be fascinating to me. All right, it's time to talk about The Battle Joined. Let's go through the stones. In The Battle Joined, we cover the doomed Battle of Culloden and a day or so of the aftermath in Jamie's POV from 1746. Are you alive? And then spend time with Claire in 1948, as she sees her pregnancy through to the birth of Brianna. Also, Frank is there. Okay, I'm going to start with Frank, because really, who cares? Don't get me wrong, I love Tobias Menzies. I think he's an incredible actor. But the Frank stuff bores the shit out of me. And in this episode, where Frank is now suddenly, you know, not terrible, he's even more boring. All right. I know, first I complained because he was a jerk, and now I'm complaining when he's actually decent, but it was never about what kind of man Frank was. I just don't care about Frank. He's at least interesting when he's an asshole. Frank being sweet and long-suffering is just Snoresville. Well, he's sweet and long-suffering with the exception of the American citizenship thing. I mean, really, Frank? That's the hill you want to die on? But even when he shouted at Claire about fucking other people, well... I didn't mind. All he knows is his wife went missing and came back pregnant. He obviously believes, at least a little bit, the story of her being whisked away 200 years in time by the stones. But all he absolutely knows for sure is that she left, had sex with another man, and returned home wild-eyed and knocked up. I don't blame Frank for being, you know, a little upset. These are extraordinary circumstances, and he's not an extraordinary man, but he's been pretty good about it, especially considering the era and the fact that he's, you know, Frank. My problem isn't even with Frank, really, but the way Ronald D. Moore insists on taking Claire's story and making it about Frank. He did it in both sides now in season one, again for Through a Glass Darkly, the season two premiere, and now? Third time's a charm, I guess? In the battle joined, every Claire scene is simply a stage for Frank the swell fella to dance upon. Look, here's Frank extending himself financially to give Claire the home that she wants. Oh, here's Frank being understanding about the baby, you know, not really being his. And wow, here's Frank standing up for his wife, you know, kind of, against the sexist boss man at the university party. Oh wait, here's a scene with just Claire, and she's making a friend with another woman, and Frank's not even there, but oh. Wait, what did the friend just say? You're lucky. You won't find another man like Frank again. And Alison Bechdel just threw herself off a moving train. Let me tell you, there is no greater irony than allowing a minor male character to completely override the major female character's story and then writing a caricatured sexist jerk scene to make it even more about the man. I mean, it's like patriarchal jujitsu. It's serious next level shit. So while we're supposedly telling Claire's story, we're really telling Frank's story. Like anyone gives an Edinburgh fart about fucking Frank Randall. This is not Frank's story. This was never Frank's story. But to hijack all of Claire's scenes so that we can focus on Frank is irritating. Even when he's being, you know, mostly a stand up guy. The problem with Frank was never that he was an asshole. The problem with Frank was that this was never his story and they keep writing it like it is his story. Dickhead or darling, nobody cares about Frank. Nobody cares about Frank. And now for all of you out there who care deeply about Frank. Actually, I think Frank will really like something different for a change. He's very progressive. Very open-minded. What little we got of Claire in Claire's story is actually pretty good. There were three things I especially loved. First was in the scene with the caricatured, patriarchal, sexist douchebag. While we did manage to make this scene, you know, mostly about Frank, there was this one line from the douchebag. <laughs> the past experience has shown a few women succeed as physicians. And the fire in Claire's eyes when he says that is wonderful. You just kind of want her to stand up, look down at him and say, Bitch, please, I saved an 18th century boy's life with nothing more than a hunch and a pot of boiled weed so you can kiss my ass. But mostly in that brief flash of time where everything wasn't about Frank, we saw the full extent of everything Claire has lost. Since returning to the 20th century, we've been so focused on the devastating loss of her one true love that we've forgotten her other true love, her purpose. Any of you who have spent any amount of time with me at all studying story, you know that my second favorite love story is the love story between a woman and her work. One of my favorite things about Claire is her devotion to healing and how damned good she is at it. Jamie's a warrior and she's a healer and part of what makes them work so well is how well they work together. And here we have Claire in a time that, granted, probably wouldn't burn her at the stake as a witch for trying to save someone's life, but even so, gives her some seriously formidable obstacles to doing her work. And that will not stand. You think Claire, Beecham Randall, Fraser Randall has any time for that bullshit? Think again. So in this split second where everything isn't all about Frank, it hit me how much Claire has lost and how much fun it's going to be watching her get it all back. The second thing I really liked was the moment she stared out her kitchen window at the bird. If you've read the books, you know the significance of birds from the text, and the writers have folded those birds into the television show quite beautifully. We had the caged birds in Colum's study, then the wild and free murmuration of starlings outside the thieves' hold when Claire and Galus were awaiting trial. Caged or free, birds tend to reflect Claire's freedom, and they always show up when she herself is caged. First is Colum's guest at Castle Leoch, later when she's literally imprisoned, and here again while she's stuck in a conventional life in Boston. What is it she said to Master Raymond in Useful Occupations and Deceptions? I feel since I've come to Paris, my life has got more and more conventional by the day. As I suppose have I. Her mistake is that she can never be conventional. She can only be forced by circumstance to live conventionally. And Claire will never live conventionally for very long. The last standout moment for Claire in this episode was the heartbreaking, where's my baby, when she woke up in the hospital. Where's my baby? Where's my baby? These are the same words she screamed in futility when she lost faith in season two. And here we are with this devastating mirror scene. Only this time, Frank wanders in with the baby, and makes it all about him again. Just like her mother. Frank. I've been so horrid. Yeah. And then we get the world's stupidest nurse who must be on her first day in the maternity ward. Where'd she get the red hair? Well, if we're passing Claire's story off to yet another man, at least this time, it's Jamie. Let it be. I'll be your wife. Or be Claire. She's gone. There's this thing I've been saying for years. If you want to tell a good story, Torture your characters. I think Diana Gabaldone has taken that literally because, Jesus, Jamie just can't catch a break, can he? We spend a lot of time watching Jamie's face as he remembers in fits and starts the horrors of Culloden Moor and waits patiently to just fucking die. For much of that time, he's lying under the dead body of a British soldier, who we can't exactly identify at first, but it's Blackjack Randall. Of course it's Blackjack Randall. No need to play coy, boys. We get it. Regardless, Jamie's story is an endless parade of misery and heartache and death, and it was well done. But honestly, like Jamie, I just couldn't wait for it to be over. So instead of going through the whole wretched litany of wretchedness, which you've already seen, you know what happened. I'm just going to list my favorite parts. First, the new opening. Every season, and sometimes even mid-season, we get an opening sequence that will vary not just the shots, but the musical treatment of the theme song, creating through Bear McCreary's seemingly endless genius a new thematic landscape for the show. We had a traditional Scottish treatment for season one, an opulent French treatment for the first half of season two, and then a brutal Scottish war drum treatment for the second half of season two. Here, we have the percussive element of the war drums, but they're softer, sadder, more echoey, reminiscent of the finality of what's been lost, rather than the hope of better things to come. I also loved the opening title card, the bloody and torn Scottish flag as it's pulled down by a British soldier, and we move into the story from there as the soldiers run the dying Scots through with bayonets and... <sighs> okay. Okay. The next thing I loved was the simple effect of the snow falling on Jamie's face. At first I wasn't sure if it was snow or if it was, you know, the ash from pyres filled with the burning bodies of fallen clansmen. but since I didn't see any fires, I choose to believe it's snow. Light, wet, purifying snow. And then we see Claire's ghostly form as she walks through the horror drawn to Jamie. She touches his face and asks if he's alive and then she morphs into a very real Rupert, which is a bit of a disappointment, but only a bit because it's Rupert. Oh God, it's so good to see Rupert. And from there on, Rupert is my favorite thing. His jovial for the circumstances. No, my lord, traitors all. Shall we be hanged then? Is so endearing and heart-lightening in the darkest of moments. I love how he cares for Jamie, how he tries to get the two boys out of their death sentence, how he forgives Jamie at the last moment and shows him grace and true friendship. And then to the British soldiers as he's going out to be shot. I mean, just at a quick pace, so try to keep up. And then I love how he single-handedly takes down the British soldiers and whisks everyone away to healing and safety. Then he gets married to a lovely fat woman and they have wonderful fat kids and he dies peacefully in his bed at the age of 98 surrounded by 47 fat grandchildren. I'm not gonna lie. I'm kind of in love with Grant O'Rourke. I know he's younger than me and I'm pretty sure he's married, but whatevs. And then it's with a sick twist of humor that I see poor Jamie, who just wanted to fucking die, thwarted yet again in this ambition by a goddamn British soldier. Seriously, this is the world's darkest three-beat. First, Randall was supposed to kill him in Wentworth and fell down on the fucking job. Like, literally. Then, during the battle at Culloden, Jamie went in wanting to die. Randall got halfway there by slicing Jamie's femoral artery. And then he fell down on the job again, literally Again, falling down in death and pressing against the injury long enough to staunch the bleeding, thus saving the life that Jamie apparently cannot give away in a bargain basement sale. And then the final insult added to so many injuries. Here we are in the last moments for everyone else and Lord Melton comes in with his debt of honor bullshit and tosses Jamie into a cart when all the dude wants is to fucking die. I promised to kill me. I don't mind if you do it for him. But I can't be too resentful of Lord Melton because he brings Jamie back to Jenny and to Ian, to Lallybrock, and to home. At the end of this seemingly endless cavalcade of grim torments, we get Jamie once again reunited with his family, even as his love and his daughter are lost to him forever. So, you know, that's something. We've got two competing stories here. Jamie's spanning a few days, Claire's spanning her pregnancy to its conclusion, and all of it kind of a hot mess from a narrative point of view. We see what happened, but it's not pulled together in any kind of elegant theme aside from the standard, let's make all of this as much about Tobias Menzies as we possibly can. We have Claire's ghost visiting Jamie. Couldn't we have had Jamie's ghost visiting Claire at some point? Something to tie the stories together, something to make it feel like there's a reflection rather than just a this happened and this happened and this happened. The thing is, a story is a series of events with meaning. So a complete story builds up to something. It can build something in a traditional linear narrative, events piling on events until we resolve the central conflict and boom, you've got a story like The Gathering. Or you can use a thematic narrative, two separate stories dancing around each other, building to each other's climax separately, but reflecting on each other, like both sides now. I mean, even if we don't care about one of the sides, it still works, narratively. You can fracture the narrative chronologically, like the wedding, using the past to reflect on the present, escalating the story until we reach the climax, which gives us the height of the story's meaning. In all of these examples, we have a story that's about something, leading to something. Here, we just dump event upon event. This happened, then this happened, then this happened, all of it not leading to much, two stories not reflecting on each other, and you get the battle joined. We've got a lot of ground to cover in season three. Voyager is a challenging book to adapt, and I don't envy this writing team the job of adapting it. It's not easy, but even a little shaping of the two sides of the narrative, a little reflection, even a thematic connection something. This is just a recitation of events. And while it's beautifully strung together, in the end, it's still just a recitation of events. I would have liked to have seen something a little more elegant here. But Outlander is almost famous for its disappointing season openers, so maybe next week we'll get something a little, well, better. All right, so I had this idea, and I'm going to do it even though it's a huge risk, but what the hell, nothing ventured, nothing gained, right? I'm going to end every episode of Sex and Whiskey with a question I'd like you guys to answer, and here's how it's gonna work. One, use your phone. Your phone is fine. This is not NBC, it's fine. Two, set it up landscape, because we don't record video and portrait, because we're not animals. Three, and this is optional, lift your glass of whatever beverage you prefer. Tea, coffee, water, soda, whiskey, wine, doesn't matter. I just don't want you parched. And finally, answer my question, and send me the video. I know that most people don't like being on video, and also that most people have no interest in being on my stupid show, like, I get that. I may never get an answer, but I'm going to ask a question every week because I believe in hope and in miracles and in Rupert, okay? That's for you, Rupert. So here's this week's question. Enough about Frank. What did you think of Frank? Sending your video link implies consent for me to use your video on the show, so no backsies. And every week, I'm going to ask a question, so somebody's going to have to send in an answer eventually, just to end my public humiliation. I'm looking at you, drunk lander. That'll do it for today. Remember to visit Chipperish.com for more great podcasts, including Still Pretty, a Buffy the Vampire Slayer vlog and podcast in the style of sex and whiskey, but with more clips from the show and less whiskey. Join me next Sunday night, September 17th at 8 p.m. Eastern for the live tweet of season three, episode two, Surrender. And immediately afterward, head over to youtube.com slash chipperishmedia to find the new episode of Sex and Whiskey, which will hopefully be up on time, although it's the future, and I don't know what the hell's going to happen. Fingers crossed, right? Sláinte sex and whiskey is a chipperish media production and is entirely funded by passionate story lovers like you visit patreon.com slash chipperish to find out how you can become a chipperish media supporter